Leviticus chapter 7. In the tabernacle, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all represented. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's one of the most important verses in the Bible. That verse says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Everything that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do is in perfect unison and perfect harmony. He is three in one. It's not Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, He, one God only. But because of our English language the way it is, we accidentally say they all the time. But it isn't they, it's He. With you and I, we have a body, a soul, and a spirit. So there's my body, my soul, my spirit, me. All of it is me. It isn't a they. My body and my soul are not they. They're me. God is one. But the thing is, I am not one. I'm one person, but I'm not one. When it said in the Bible here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, it means that he is totally unified and totally unique. Because I'm not unique because there's billions of human beings. I'm one in a billion. Actually, one in several billion, if you consider all of history. So I'm not unique. But there's nobody like God. He's one of a kind. He doesn't procreate. So even though Jesus is his son, he never procreated to get Jesus. He's his son in a spiritual sense. Jesus is everything that sonship means. It means that you're the right hand of your father, that everything you do, you do for your father, that everything you do, you do on behalf of your father, that the work you do is the same work that your father does that he taught you. That's what sonship means, and that's why Jesus is the son of God. But he is God. He is part of God. And he manifested in bodily form on earth in a man's body, so he represents the body. We could go on for hours and hours about the identity of God. I mean, days. There's so much to be said about it. Because Jesus did the work of both the bride and the bridegroom. He's the only one who obeyed the Father and the only sacrifice. He fulfills the duties of both the bride and the bridegroom, even though he's only the bridegroom. He's not the bride. We're the bride. But he did our duty of obedience. Getting back to the oneness of God, the other reason God is one is not only because he's one of a kind, but because he's completely unified within himself. With you and me, we are not unified. We are not one within ourselves. When my body wants sleep, my soul wants to watch TV, but my spirit is the part of me that wants to pray, obey the Lord, and all this stuff. My body, soul, and spirit are constantly at war. They always want different things. Even when you pay your taxes, your soul does not want to pay taxes. Your soul knows that you're getting robbed. Your spirit knows that God said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And because your spirit knows right from wrong, it says you have to pay the taxes. That's what God requires, is that you obey the law. Meanwhile, your soul is lamenting it, going, wow, what a waste of money. And your body is just going, can we afford pizza? You couldn't pay taxes without disunity. Because it's your spirit telling you to pay, and your soul is saying, I don't want to pay. But with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everything they do is unified. They agree on everything. Everything the Son has ever done is what the Father wanted. Everything the Holy Spirit has ever told us is what glorifies the Father and the Son. 
everything that the Father has ever wanted is exactly what the Spirit and the Son are working toward. There's nothing but unity for all eternity. So here in the tabernacle, you also see the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enacted. The Father is hovering over the tabernacle as either a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. Plus, his presence is above the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. And he's watching. He sees everything that happens in the tabernacle. And he's watching the priests conduct the sacrifices. And he's watching the priests eat the holy meals that he's given them through the people. The priest has to eat some of these meals in the presence of the Father. And that shows Jesus in the presence of the Father. Because Jesus was always in the Father's presence. That shows the holy communion of the Father and the Son. The Spirit is represented through the anointing oil that's used on both the priests and the sacrifices, and also in the seven lighted candlestick that's inside the tabernacle. That represents the seven character traits of the Spirit of God. Now, God actually has a lot of character traits, more than seven. We're going to read about tons of character traits that God has in the Bible. But these seven major traits are represented in the candlestick. And the oil is on a lot of the offerings. The blood is on a lot of the offerings, which represents the blood to come of Jesus Christ on the cross. The reason the priests have to eat in the presence of God is because the offering is holy. They're holy. They need to stay in that holy place. But also, it shows that the Father and the Son are one. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 1. And this is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. Two, in the place where they kill the burnt offering, shall they kill the guilt offering, and the blood thereof shall be dashed against the altar round about. A guilt offering, it's not the same thing as a sin offering, but it's in the same category, because it's still offered for our sin. And it shows that Christ took the blame for our sin. It's in the same category, but there's still two separate offerings. 3. And he shall offer of it all the fat thereof, the fat tell and the fat that covereth the inwards. 4. And the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, which is by the loins, and the lobe above the liver, which he shall take away by the kidneys. 5. And the priest shall make smoke upon the altar for an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a guilt offering. 6. Every male among the priests may eat thereof. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The sin offering is for when you sin against God. And the guilt offering is for when you sin against your neighbor. If I stole my neighbor's donkey, I have to give them a perfectly good donkey back plus 20% worth of a donkey, whether it's lamb, flour, or whatever, but it's going to be worth 20% of a donkey. Then on top of that, I have to go to the Lord and give my guilt offering because I'm guilty of harming my neighbor. Seven, as is the sin offering, so is the guilt offering. There is one law for them. The priest that maketh atonement therewith, he shall have it. The way both offerings are presented is exactly the same. God gets the blood, God gets the fat, and the priest who performs the service is the one who gets the meat. There is a whole bunch of Levites performing these sacrifices every day, and there's hundreds of sacrifices coming in in, in a given day. Whichever priest performs the sacrifice, he takes that food either for himself or for his family. 
the priests are taking turns. Oh, you're up, whoever's next, because that person hasn't had a chance to serve the Lord yet that day, and he needs meat for his family. And then after he serves, somebody else who hasn't served for the day will get called up. Eight. And the priest that offereth any man's burnt offering, even the priest shall have to himself the skin of the burnt offering, which he hath offered. What do they need skin for? To make tents, to make clothing, to make leather goods of all kinds. They would take the skin home, give it to their wife, and then their wife can do all kinds of things with that skin, creating all kinds of good things that they need for the home. Because the Levites needed home furnishings and products as well as they needed food, just like any of the rest of us. They would also get the products of the animal. So God is giving them the skin. That's pretty awesome. 9. And every meal offering that is baked in the oven, and all that is dressed in the stewing pan and on the griddle, shall be the priest that offereth it. When the people bring what I call the pancake offering, it's the fried bread. They also boil the meat sometimes in some offerings. The priest who performs those the service for that particular offering, he will get it. Why is there such a wide variety of offerings? You can give flour. You can give wafers. You can give cakes. You can give griddle cakes, pancakes. You can give cow, sheep. The reason there's so much variety is because the priests are going to eat all this. If there is only one type of offering, that means the priests have to only eat one type of meal. That's hard to do. Human beings need a variety of different foods in order to feel satisfied and to have comfort in our stomachs. If we eat the exact same thing every day, after a while we get sick of it. God set up the offerings so that the priest and his family won't get sick of the food they're eating. 10. And every meal offering mingled with oil or dry shall all the sons of Aaron have, one as well as another. 11. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which one may offer unto the Lord. So now it's going to talk about peace offerings. The peace offering is the fellowship offering that you eat with family and friends, and it is a meat offering, but it's to be eaten in a group. And it also represents peace between God and man, so it's eaten in God's presence. And it represents fellowship with God. 12. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with a sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mingled with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour soaked. There's going to be fine cakes, there's going to be crackers with oil spread on top, and there's going to be flatbread. 13. With cakes of leavened bread he shall present his offering with a sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving. 14. And of it he shall present one out of each offering for a gift unto the Lord. It shall be the priests that dasheth the blood of the peace offering against the altar. It shall be the priests that dasheth the blood of the peace offerings against the altar. Whoever actually dashes the blood on the altar, that's the one who gets this bread. See how the priests have to work for what they get, but it also shows who gets what. And it keeps the priests honest among themselves so that one priest can't hoard it all. And because everybody knows that they all need food, they're not going to let one guy do every single offering. They're going to make sure that all the men that are serving that day get to do an offering. 15. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. They have to eat it in a reasonable amount of time, and what they don't eat, they have to burn completely. 
16. But if the sacrifice of his offering be a vow or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offereth his sacrifice, and on the morrow that which remaineth of it may be eaten. This is if it's not for sin, but if you actually gave a sacrifice to make a vow before God, or if you're giving a sacrifice just out of the abundance of love in your heart for the Lord. You know, a lot of people give tithe simply out of love. They're just so overjoyed with the love for God that they give a tithe. And that's kind of how some of these people would bring offerings. And also if it's being offered for a vow. In the New Testament, it says, be really careful when you make a vow to God because you're going to have to keep it. And so you and I need to be careful about that too. Don't promise God anything unless you know you're going to keep that promise because he takes it very seriously. But in these times, the people would actually give God a sacrifice when they were making a vow. 17. But that which remaineth of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burnt with fire. So I guess on the third day it's definitely no good. 18. And if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings be at all eaten on the third day, it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be imputed unto him that offereth it. It shall be an abhorred thing, and the soul that eateth of it shall bear his iniquity. When the meat has been out that long, it's bad and you can't eat it. If you eat it when it's been out that long instead of burning it, you have defiled the offering itself so that the person who brought it, it's now not recognized. It keeps the priest responsible. He needs to do what's right for himself and for the person who brought the offering and for God. 19. And the flesh that toucheth any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burnt with fire. And as for the flesh, everyone that is clean may eat thereof. You have to be clean to eat the flesh. In the Bible, we'll talk more about what cleanliness is later. Cleanliness is mainly that you haven't touched anything dead or anybody who has a bodily fluid coming out, and you yourself don't have any bodily fluids coming out. That's what makes you clean for the most part. And we can all understand that because if you're oozing some sort of bodily fluid, you're not clean. Say there's a pot that was required to be broken because it had blood in it. Clay pots are porous, so they had to be broken if they had blood in them. They couldn't be used again. Say one of those broken pots that had blood in it touches the sacrifice. Now the sacrifice is unclean. 20. But the soul that eateth of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings that pertain unto the Lord, having his uncleanness upon him, that soul shall be cut off from his people. When you defile the offering, you've lost your place in the family of God. In the book of Daniel, it talks about how the Antichrist will actually defile the temple of the Lord. God takes it really seriously when his holy things are defiled. 21. And when anyone shall touch any unclean thing, whether it be the uncleanness of man or an unclean beast, or any unclean detestable thing, and eat of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which pertain unto the Lord, that soul shall be cut off from his people. And again, it's because you're defiling the offering. So an un- unclean beast would be a pig, for instance. An unclean thing might be a dead animal or a dead person. If you touch something that's unclean and then you go straight to eating the sacrificed food, you're defiling what was sacrificed. But if you touch it and then you just go wash yourself and you just eat at home like normal, that's not a problem. God isn't punishing people who simply touch something unclean because it's going to happen. But he's punishing you if you touch something unclean and then irreverently with your filth go and eat the thing on the altar.
22. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, 23. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Ye shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat. 24. And the fat of that which dieth of itself, and the fat of that which is torn of beasts, may be used for any other service, but ye shall in no wise eat of it. They cannot have the fat of the clean animals. And this is good for their hearts, because it'll clog their arteries if they eat it because it represents the best part of the animal and it's for him alone. But also he's telling them, if they find a dead animal, they can take its fat and make soap out of it and other products for themselves. They can use fat to make products for their house. They just can't eat fat. 25. For whosoever eateth the fat of the beast, of which men present an offering made by fire unto the Lord, even the soul that eateth it shall be cut off from his people. 26. And ye shall eat no manner of blood, whether it be of fowl or of beast, in any of your dwellings. 27. Whosoever it be that eateth any blood, that soul shall be cut off from his people. We really should do our best to avoid eating blood because that was one of the only things in the New Testament that they told the Christians not to do. They said, we don't have to keep all the ordinances because the ordinances were material. What we have to keep is the spiritual law that Christ gave us. In the material ordinances, you can't commit adultery. But in Jesus' law, you can't even have lust. So you can't even think about committing adultery. It's a way higher order. They said, we're not going to put all the physical ordinances on the church because they have this way higher order where they have to have a clean heart, not just act clean on the outside, but they have to have a clean heart on the inside. But one of the few things they said is they said, don't eat the blood because the blood is still the life of the animal. There's been a few times where I was at somebody's house and they gave me raw meat, you know, what's it called? Rare or medium rare. And it's like, to me, that's disgusting because God doesn't like that. But, but there's been a couple of times where I took a bite just to be polite. And all of our meat has blood in it because they don't drain the blood out of the animal when they butcher it. Unless you can find a kosher shop, which is really hard to find. In a lot of cities, they don't have kosher shops. You can't get meat without blood in it. And he's a compassionate, merciful God. So he knows that we don't really have a choice these days because the only meat we're allowed to eat has blood in it. They won't give us kosher meat. And that's not our fault. So God understands. And in the New Testament, Jesus commanded the disciples that they should eat whatever is set before them. So if you're at somebody's house and they give you bloody meat, if you're there to share the gospel, you're supposed to eat what they set before you. But if I cook meat, I cook it till it's done. 29. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, He that offereth his sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord shall bring his offering unto the Lord out of his sacrifice of peace offerings. 30. His own hands shall bring the offerings of the Lord made by fire. The fat with the breast shall he bring, that the breast may be waved for a wave offering before the Lord. Now the reason that they have wave offerings often is because the priest is going to eat that meat, but it'll get waved before the Lord to show the Lord this was brought for you, but we're going to eat it because you allow us to and you command us to. It's like dedicated to you. It's in your honor. And that could be a grain offering or a meat offering could get waived. 31. And the priest shall make the fat smoke upon the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. With a wave offering, the priest does eat it, but they don't eat the fat, even though the fat gets cooked with it. See how good God is. He allows them to eat meat that had fat cooked with it, which would make the meat kind of crispy and delicious. And it's kind of like basting, which is so delicious. 
but he gets the bulk of the fat. It'll get burned. 32. And the right thigh shall ye give unto the priest for a heave offering out of your sacrifices of peace offerings. So remember, there is like a pitchfork type instrument, and that was how they heaved the meat up onto the altar. And when they heaved it, it would be food for the priests because they're cooking it for themselves, but in God's honor. 33. He among the sons of Aaron that offereth the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. The specific individual priest who performs that service for that particular offering, he gets the thigh. 34. For the breast of waving and the thigh of heaving have I taken of the children of Israel out of their sacrifices of peace offerings, and have given them unto Aaron the priest and unto his sons as a due forever from the children of Israel. God is having the priests eat the best part of the animal, which is the breast and the right thigh. 35. This is the consecrated portion of Aaron, and the consecrated portion of his sons, out of the offerings of the Lord made by fire, in the day when they were presented to minister unto the Lord in the priest's office. 36. Which the Lord commanded to be given them of the children of Israel in the day that they were anointed. It is a due forever throughout their generations. 37. This is the law of burnt offering, of the meal offering, and of the sin offering, and of the guilt offering, and of the consecration offering, and of the sacrifice of peace offerings. 38. Which the Lord commanded Moses in Mount Sinai, in the day that he commanded the children of Israel to present their offerings unto the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. This is still Mount Horeb, because Sinai and Horeb are the exact same mountain. Horeb means fire and Sinai means thorn, I believe. So it's the thorn in the fire, which is the burning bush. This is the same mountain where Moses met God at the burning bush. Now it's the mountain where they've come back and gotten the law and come to worship God. And it also represents that Jesus wore a crown of thorns on the cross, and that's why it was a bush of thorns that was burning. And the fire represents the power and the heart of God. And God says that he is a consuming fire. He actually calls himself a consuming fire. That's one of his names. Because he consumes everything. He's so powerful. It took power for Jesus to die on the cross. God's power. God's power is displayed above the tabernacle at night in fire. And his power is also displayed every time there's an offering given because of the fire. And that concludes Leviticus chapter 7.